Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. stories series where we're spending time primarily on Jesus' parables. We're throwing in a couple Old Testament stories as way. Today, we're going to deal with a topic that I think touches all of our lives. Life is unfair. It's just unfair, isn't it? And, uh, or, or like this, when this happens at a birthday party that you're at, that's just as totally unfair, right? That's just, and this next one is, is even worse. It, this is like, I mean, come on. Who's, who even stands a chance against the flash in this one? I think eventually in life, a lot of us get to the place dealing with the unfairness issues in life where we want to post this meme uh, and, uh, and say this uh, next one that is going to come up right there. Dear life, I completely grasp the fact that life is not fair. Please stop teaching me that lesson over and over and over again. You know, we have to deal with this issue, don't we, that life is unfair. And today we're going to deal with a powerful story in Jesus that helps us address that and I think move past it to this really beautiful place to live life from. Let's jump right into the story, uh, Jesus' parable found in Matthew 20. It says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, meaning about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, noon, and about the ninth hour, three o'clock, he did the same thing that day. And it was about the eleventh hour and five o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour, five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought, oh, we're going to receive a whole lot more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, saying, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So this parable is not about God giving us an economic lesson or dictating economic policy telling us all to be socialists. It's not about redistribution of wealth or that people cannot earn more than other people around themselves. It's not meant to challenge rules about how we do business. It's not about God's judgment day or the rewards we will or will not get. There are actually three common interpretations to this parable which may hold some truth, but I think all of them miss the main point. 
The main point of this parable is, as one of the common interpretations would say, but it's not for Jesus to tell the Jewish people that even though God chose them first, they were rejecting him, and therefore the Gentiles were going to be rewarded instead. The main point of this parable is not to make a point that the people who come to faith early in life will get the same reward as the people who come to faith late in life. And so if you've been a Christian for a long time, don't be jealous of those who come to faith later. And this parable's main point is not about telling us the way we get to be first in line in heaven is to give up our place in line here on earth, though Jesus does call all of us to be servants of all. All of those fairly common interpretations of this passage are focused on the workers in this parable. And there may be some truth in them that we can learn, but the parables are first and foremost about God and who God is and what his presence among us can do for us. So focusing our interpretation on the workers while possibly shedding some good side lessons causes us to miss the main point of what Jesus is actually saying. And yet Jesus is using the workers in this parable to help us relate to this reality that life is unfair. And Jesus is using that idea to set up his main point. We all face times in life, right, when life is unfair, when we think God is unfair. When God heals someone but not our loved one, we think, God, are you fair? When someone gets promoted and makes it big in business and we feel like we worked harder, had greater integrity, and we wonder, God, are you fair? Just like the 6 a.m. crew wondered about the workers who got paid the same at 5 p.m. in the afternoon. In order to understand this story, we need to work through the number one rule of biblical interpretation, which was pay attention to context. And our story is actually the ending piece of a series of interactions Jesus has that begin all the way back in the previous chapter in chapter 19 of Matthew. So leading up to the story, what we see happening is this really rich young man comes to Jesus and says to him, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus is actually pretty funny and snarky sometimes if you read him for what he's really saying. And his response is kind of that way here. When this guy asks, what good must I do? Jesus' first response is, no one but God is good. In other words, you want me to tell you what good deed is enough? The reality is you can't be good enough. Only God is good. Jesus finally tells the rich young man, go ahead and sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man it says, is very sad and dejected. He walks away. He liked his money. He liked what that meant about his self-identity and his self-image more than he wanted God to define his identity and life. So he walked away, upset. Well, Jesus' disciples are looking at this, and they're thinking, Jesus is about to rise up right now, and he's, gonna, he's, he's the guy going to bring the kingdom of God, so he's going to throw off the Romans, and he's going to establish Israel again as one of the greatest God-fearing kingdoms on the earth. And they're thinking, well, but Jesus, this rich guy, he's really nice, he's really good, because in the interaction with Jesus, Jesus says, have you done these commands? He says, yes, I've done them all. So this guy is a really, really good guy. He's trying hard to follow God. And, and the disciples are going, frankly, Jesus, you know, if we're going to establish this kingdom, on earth. We need people like him. We need money guys like him to fund this revolution and this new kingdom. So they're thinking, if this guy isn't acceptable enough to be part of us, then who is? But then at that point in the interaction, we begin to see the disciples' hearts begin to be exposed. And I think in that, we also see all of humanity's hearts, our hearts, exposed in the story. Peter stands up and he says, 
hey, uh, God, while that man wasn't willing to give up everything, well, we have. We've given up everything. So since we've given up everything to follow you, our jobs, our comfortable lifestyle, left our families for extended periods of times, then what do we get is the question Peter asks. I mean, what do we get? And immediately preceding our parable today comes right on the heels of that question, and Jesus gives them this awesome, reassuring answer at the end of Matthew 19. He says how they would be rewarded with this eternal significance and influence and authority and, and how if they gave up family and friends and wealth in this life for God, they will receive a hundredfold in this life and an eternal life. But Jesus sees a bigger, bigger picture at work here. It's a heart issue that he sees in Peter, and I think he sees in us. So he tells the parable we just read in response to that. So the point of this parable is all about the owner and how the owner is incredibly gracious and generous in ways that seem illogically kind to us and generous to us, recklessly generous and loving, an owner for whom generosity trumps fairness. See, the story is primarily about the owner, about God. And the one main point is simply this. We serve an extremely generous God. Now, we're going to draw from that two sub-lessons today. And out of those two sub-lessons, there's two warnings that I think this parable brings out for us. But, But the main point is this parable is showing us that God is so generous that we as humans have no good human comparison. The human way of carrying on business, the way God does life, it just doesn't compute for us. God's generosity is different than ours. It's greater than ours. It exceeds ours. So consider this. When you think about Jesus and how he as God reveals God to us in his life here on earth, What descriptive phrase comes to mind when you think about Jesus both on earth and now? Well, we might say God is merciful, he's holy, he's good, and that's all true. We might say almighty, omnipotent, sovereign, powerful, healer, certainly. But how about generous? Is that one of the first words that comes to mind when you think about Jesus, when you think about God? Is that one of the, is that what leads your feeling and your thoughts as you seek God, as you walk through the day, as you face decisions, as you, as you face difficulties in life? Is the leading edge of your thinking and your feeling about God that God is outrageously generous? When you're volunteering to serve in the mission of God through the church or in the community and you experience difficulty or or stress, is your first thought, God is so generous, he's going to make something good through me in this situation? When you're experiencing pain and loss and sickness and relational strain at home or at work, are you thinking, I serve a ridiculously generous God, so things are going to be okay? When you're praying, and your prayer is not yet answered, and you're frustrated that it's not answered, are you thinking, I am so confident, so full of anticipation of how God is going to be present through this, even in the unknown, because I know God is radically generous. See, that's what this parable is teaching us. 
God is generous beyond our parameters for generosity. God is the owner of all that exists. He's the owner of Quest. He's the owner of my house, my bank accounts, my family, my life, all that I have and all that I am. And he is so generous. See, in the rich young ruler and in Peter, we see the same thing going on that you and I tend to struggle with. We don't trust the generosity of God We instead struggle with the fairness question. Why? It's because we still live through a merit system. The rich young ruler, a very moral, God-fearing man, a man all of us would look up to and think, wow, he is a really, really good man, was still trying to live through the merit system of what he got and what he needed to do to be good enough. Peter's question, what do I get, was reflecting that same merit system. Imagine when he says that, his chest puffed up, standing in a proud position, head raised, saying and thinking, well, we've already done what Jesus asked that rich guy to do that he wouldn't do, so we must be really good. You see, the rich man is seeking a guarantee of reward that he merits. Peter is wanting to know what they get and receive as a guarantee from the goodness that they, will, that they have demonstrated and, and be rewarded with. But Jesus is trying to help them and to help all of us step away from that merit system and its striving and step into this place of just resting in how God is generous and to live from that place of deep, full, abiding contentment and peace and joy. So how generous is God? Well, I think the first sub-lesson that Jesus teaches us in this story is trust God's generosity without needing guarantees. How many of you have a friend, and when they ask you to do something or when you give them something, you don't need a guarantee? You know they're good, they're responsible. You don't need a written contract. You don't even need to negotiate with them ahead of time what they're going to do for you if you do something for them. You trust them. They have always treated you kindly and graciously and generously. Well, how much more God? How much more God? So let's drop back into the story to see this in the story. Notice how Jesus talks to the 6 a.m. crew of workers. He says, hey, come and work for me for a day. And uh, the workday was typically 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or approximately sunup to sundown. So the landowner in Jesus' story comes to the people waiting in the square for work. The first batch of the 6 a.m. crew agreed to the landowner's terms they, to pay them a denarius for the whole day's work. Now, understand, uh, they strike a bargain. They've negotiated. They've got their reward. And actually, the denarius was the average wage of a Roman soldier during that day. So paying a farm worker that same wage was like they were really happy. They were going to make bank that day. It was good money. We are often that way with God, like the 6 a.m. crew, aren't we? God comes to us and asks us to follow him, and we, like the rich and ruler, like Peter, just before this story and these workers in the story, we go into the bargaining mode. We go into negotiating mode. We say, God, if I, if I do this, what do I get for it? God, if you give me this, I will then do this. But notice how the landowner talks to the rest of the crews. He just says, hey, you go into the veneer too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. No negotiating, no bargaining, just work and trust me. 
See, I think we are often more like the first group. If, if, if I obey you, God, in this, what, what do I get? If, will you guarantee my family's life will always be easy? Will you guarantee that my effort to produce growth in my business or my life will be rewarded? If, if I serve your mission through the church by volunteering, will you, will you guarantee that it's going to be easy and fun and I'll never get sick? If I choose not to have an abortion and, and instead keep my baby, will I still get the career I want and never have to struggle financially? If I go to marriage counseling, which you, will you guarantee that my marriage will work out and will be happy, that I won't be hurt in the future? If I follow you as a single person in the sexual abstinence you ask me to, will you guarantee that I won't end up lonely? God, will you be fair and reward me appropriately for what I do and I give for your sake? And to our requests and our bargaining and negotiating, this parable kind of communicates that God is saying to us, no guarantees. There is no guarantee. If you serve God, there's no guarantee that you will have a definable success in the way this world measures it. Your business may not grow as you desire. Fulfilling God's call in your life may not be easy and, and, and give you the level of good feelings and rewards that you expect of it. You may still face hardship. You may still face setbacks and cancer or financial difficulties or difficult relationships or grief or betrayal. No guarantee. But God says you can still trust me. Why? Because I am incredibly generous, beyond all that you would even think generosity should go to. Trust that alone. No bargaining. You don't have to know your future. You don't have to know your reward before obeying. Because I am good, he's saying to us. I am generous. I am wildly, unpredictably, extravagantly generous in ways that you might never even anticipate. Can you imagine the workers lining up to get paid at the end of the day? The guys who worked 12 hours are thinking, hey, we deserve to be first in line, but, but they're, we're, we're the tiredest, we've worked the hardest, and we should be there, but, but the master lines them up in the opposite order, making those who work the longest wait till the end to get their paid. Now put yourself in the 6 a.m. crew's uh, shoes in that moment. The guys who, way at the head of the line, way ahead of them, who came at 5 in the afternoon get a denarius. And they're thinking, did I, did I see that right? And then the next group comes up and they, they see him get a denarius and they go, wow, what am I going to get if they got that? And the next two comes up and, and gets the same. And from the back of the line, you could, you could hear him saying, I, I could swear I'm seeing that right. And their excitement grows. I must, be, I must be getting a really huge bonus today. I did so much. I worked so much harder. I was faithful for so much longer. But as the line gets shorter and shorter, they begin to notice that every single person is getting a denarius, and their hearts begin to anticipate the discouragement. And what, these guys, they got as much as me? This stingy master is probably going to get the, give me the same? I mean, if he can afford to pay those other guys on that pay scale, then he can afford that same pay scale for me, and I, I did this so I should get... And Jesus' answer is, are you offended by my generosity? Am I, God, not free to do what I want with what is mine? 
So you remember the, the wage of the 6 a.m. crew agreed to was already a generous wage. It was a denarius. It was more than they ever expect. They thought it was, they were happy to agree to it at 6 a.m. in the morning. God is saying the point is not what you or another or yet another has or gets. If you live life comparing like that, you will miss the main point and live with driven anxiety and stress. You'll miss the main point, which is God is generous. God is saying you don't have to know what you're going to get or not get in the future to start obeying me. I am generous, and you can trust that. Don't focus on all the rest going on around you. Just focus on that. Rest in the knowledge that I am generous, and I will be generous with you as well. And with that comes a warning. Be wary of negotiating with God. See, when we pray, isn't it true that so often we negotiate with God? We've all heard about the foxhole prayers when the battle is on and the bullets are flying over your head we don't, and we don't see much hope. We, we pray these prayers that the movies portray often and they say, God, if, if you will just save me, I'll give you my life. But we don't do it in just life and death things either, do we? We do it in relationships and jobs and money. In fact, some of you have even done it with the lottery. Just come on, confess it. God, if you will help me win this money... If you will give me this big bonus, if you will give me this job, if you'll heal my child, if you'll make this romantic relationship that I want to work, and if you'll give me what I'm asking for, then I promise to do this for you. I recently watched a drama while relaxing one evening, and the lead character was in a desperate life and death situation. They prayed, God, if you will let me live, I will never ask you for another thing all my life. Like that is some sort of gift to God. There's actually a scene in the movie Amadeus where, as a teen, the composer Salieri uh, kneels before a crucifix in the church and he tries to negotiate and strike a bargain with God. He says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal. And return for making Salieri famous and allowing him to compose music to the glory of God, Salieri says... I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. As you may know, he ended up being merely just a, at best an average composer, and he grows over the course of his life increasingly angry at how unfair God is blessing the great composer Mozart. Salieri sees Mozart's genius, but he also sees Mozart's clear moral failings, and he becomes consumed with envy and confusion that God would bless an inferior man with magnificent music and fail to reward his own devotion strikes him as one of God's cruelest jokes, and it drives him insane. So we tend to offer God a deal. God, I'll sacrifice for you if you do. And we think God is a negotiator who needs something from us. You do something for me, God, and I'll do something for you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, as if the perfect creator of everything has ever had an itch that needs to be scratched. When we're doing that, we're not praying to the God that exists. We're praying to a distorted image of God, a vending machine God of our own imagination. I put something in and I get something out. 
And if I don't have anything to give, I just shake the vending machine hard enough with my, with my protesting and negotiating, and I'll still get something out if God's fair. See, we can't negotiate with God. Why? Well, the biggest reason is we have nothing to give God. Absolutely nothing. God created everything, you and I included. He gave us everything we have. When we say to God, if you do this, I'll give you this, what do we even have to offer him? That's not already his. See, when we negotiate with God, he simply says to us, you have nothing I need. You know, one of the things I really love and miss about having small children around the house is having the fun of making them feel so big and strong. By putting them on your shoulders and lifting them up really high and wrestling with them and letting them pin you and where they start to think, wow, I'm so tall or I'm so big or I'm so strong, Daddy. That's so much fun to play with kids like that. And, but no, they're really not, are they? They're not that tall. They're just sitting on your shoulders. We're not that tall. We're just sitting on God's shoulders. And we're not that strong. God is just loving us and enjoying playing with us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? See, God doesn't make deals. He is simply extravagantly generous, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. He is such a generous king. So how else do we see God's generosity in the story? I think God is so generous, he invites us to serve him in order to meet our need. See, notice the landowner in this parable goes to the marketplace looking for workers. Now, who are these people in the marketplace? Think about that for a second. They are the unemployed. They're the people who don't have jobs. They are the people who need something. I mean, what a picture of God's generosity that is. He invites us to serve him so that he can richly supply our needs. But but even further, think about that further. Even the people who were hired at 5 p.m., one hour before the end of the day, the landowner isn't hiring them for what they can do for him. There's only one hour left. And on top of that, these are the people that no one else wanted to hire all day. These are the people who aren't the good workers. Maybe they hurt their back and they can't do what they used to do. Or maybe they were up late last night getting drunk and they never even wake up until the afternoon to get to the place before 5 o'clock to see if they could get a job. I mean, whatever the reason, the 5 p.m. crew is the least desirable workers. They're not being hired because the landowner needs them The landowner is asking them to work for him so that he can meet their need for a daily wage. See, God never asks us to work for him because he needs something from us. He asks us because in so doing, he meets the needs of our lives. God doesn't pay us and reward us for what we do because we're doing something for him. We can't give anything back to God that he has not already given to us, that's not already his. What God is doing in asking us to work for him is actually saving us from the mishandling and the ill use of our lives. We ruin our gifts and our lives by our sin, by squandering the time, by the mismanagement of our talents, by the harming of our relationships, by the abusing of our bodies. He is saving us. He is giving to us 
So think about this for a second. When you volunteer anywhere, but for example, when you volunteer and serve in the church, are you thinking, I'm giving a gift to God and to the church by doing what I'm doing? You see, that's not it at all. If you are responding to a nudge from God to volunteer and serve, you are being invited into your calling, into your purpose in life. God isn't asking you to do that as a favor to the church or to God. He is asking you to do that for you, for your calling, for your fulfillment in life. God is so generous because it is just who he is. He gives and he gives and he gives. He doesn't do it to satisfy a hole in his heart that needs to be filled by his creatures. He gives because we're needy. And we can't exist without his grace, without his gift of air and water and holding the universe together and meaning and purpose in life. We need God. We need him to take our lives that have been so corrupted and ruined by sin and save us and restore us and reteach us how to handle who he has made us to be in a way that brings life to us and life to others. And each and every one of us is like the wrecked body, the dead body of the, you heard about the Nigerian stowaway this last week in the news who stowed away on an airplane from Nigeria and as the wheel well came down as they're landing in London, he fell out. And when he hit the ground, he actually broke the stone sidewalk and put a great big hole in the stone and the, the ground surrounding him. Imagine what his body was like after he hit the ground. See, God is the one who takes your body out of the dent in the stone that you have made falling out of flight because of your sin and gives you life and restores your health, whether you recognize God's being at work in it or not. That is what God does, which leads us to our second and final warning. So we need to live life being wary of disappointing expectations making you bitter. See, notice in the text, again, we kind of touched on this. The 6 a.m. workers come. They, they, they go through this roller coaster of emotion, thinking at first, wow, the 5 p.m. Got pay, people got paid that much, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a huge payday. By the time they got to the paymaster's desk, they were already spiraling down, seeing that the landowner was giving every shift the exact same amount, and they began to grumble. That's not fair. You made them equal to us, and they did nothing. We worked all day through the heat of the day and we worked harder than those slow misfits who no one wanted to hire who were still in the square at 5 p.m. And again, but Jesus replied to one of them saying, Friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, isn't it so easy in life for us to form expectations in life? And then when the outcomes don't happen or they don't happen like you want, you find yourself grumbling over the unfairness. You get into a job and you've always been able to produce growth like fast in the other places you've been a part of and God calls you to something that doesn't grow, maybe for years We all hear about the success stories. We hear about the people going from poverty, from nothing to billionaires. And we hear about small groups and ministries and businesses that grow and multiply quickly, but ours doesn't. And we hear about families where everything seems to be going smooth. Uh, Kids are all the top of the class and they're liked by everyone. And that's not our experience with our family. 
we hear about the person who is healed of cancer, but that wasn't happening for us. And we think, well, God did that for someone else. Why not me? The question is, what do we do with our disappointment when we live life comparing and focusing on what God does for other people? See, I think it's one of the reasons why, maybe the biggest reasons why we struggle to pray. Disappointment from comparison and the unfairness of those comparisons bring out in our minds. That's what this parable is about. Do we become bitter with God? Start believing God is not really generous. In fact, we go as far as saying he's unfair. God answers them, but he doesn't answer me in the same way. I thought, God, you would make me more successful, more loved. And God, I thought when I became a follower of Jesus, all the temptations would go away. I thought you would change my feelings and expectations. But what do we do with the expectations and the disappointment we so often face? We have, I think, one of three choices. Fight, flight, or rest. We can fight We can jump back into negotiating with God and working harder and trying to be better and pray more and be more moral and more disciplined and we think we strengthen our negotiating position with God. We can take flight. We can just shut down, hold God at a distance, maybe even run away from our faith. Or we can recognize and rest in God's awesome generosity. We can just recognize God as generous and trustingly live in that, that even when somebody else is generous to somebody else and our experience is not that kind of generosity in this moment, we can still rejoice with their generosity and still trust he's going to be generous with us. After all, what did Jesus say right before this parable when Peter said, we've given everything, what do we get? Jesus said there, and even in more detail when he says the same thing elsewhere, you'll get a hundred times in this life, in the coming life, eternal life. If you leave family and friends to follow me, you will have family and friends multiplied all over the world. Your relationships will be a hundredfold richer in meaning and in fulfillment and in purpose and in the number in this life and in this life to come. If you give up treasure in this life, you will lay up treasure in heaven. And whatever you give, time, talent, treasure, or love, and especially giving love in the face of rejection, you will will be rewarded with finding what truly abundant life really is now in this life and in eternal life. The invitation today is simply this, to start focusing or increase our focus on trusting more in the generosity of God. We can never outgive God because God himself is generous and he's given us everything from the very beginning. So trust that. So what's the Holy Spirit been kind of touching in you as we've been talking today about where he wants to work in your life in that regard now? Where is God inviting you to trust his generosity and confidently rest in that place rather than living driven by the merit system? See, Jesus is inviting you to let go of your disappointment and rediscover how generous and kind he is. He's inviting you to rest, to this deep contentment that carries you through all of life, all because you know God is so generous. Would you stand with me? So, Lord, 
as we turn our hearts now to worship and celebrate communion, Lord, we celebrate the most generous act of love and kindness in all of history, that you, the creator of all that exists, the creator of every one of us here today, would humble yourself and leave your throne in heaven to come to earth and limiting yourself to live like us, that you would live perfectly and lovingly Lord, giving us an example to follow so that we can gladly receive this bread representative of your body, representative of the fact that you came like one of us today and we can think of how generous and how kind and how loving and how wonderful you are. That you would love us so much that you would even die for us, that you would take the penalty through the shedding of your blood to wipe our slates clean of all sin. Lord, thank you for your tremendous generosity that goes beyond anything we could reasonably even dream up of being generous. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in you and rest in that. So, Father, I pray that right now as we continue to worship and receive communion, that your spirit would come and that you would impart that rest upon us, that we would experience the rest of your Holy Spirit resting upon us right now. Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G O T O. West.org. Thanks for listening.